Welcome to the Football Fun Factory Podcast. Delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Liam Hughes. Liam is someone who's played for a number of different clubs. Cambridge United was at Leeds as a youngster. Uh, and has sort of worked his way through fo- the football league system and played a little bit in non-league as well. Uh, I think this one's going to be a really interesting one, Liam. Thanks for coming on, mate. How are you? Uh, yeah, real good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure, mate. Um, I think we've, we'll probably start at the beginning. I'm, I'm keen to kind of get a bit of a picture of, of what your journey is through football, where that passion came from to start with. Where did it all begin for you? I think like when like any any boyhood dream like kind of you grow up and your your family loves football my dad loved football you know and when you grow up around it you kind of it becomes part of your life as well i loved football as a kid always in the garden like um playing with my brother and and growing up it was a real like an escape for me because i was kind of like one of these little lads who had so much energy and was kind of in the wrong place at wrong times. Maybe he's got in a little bit of trouble, a bit mischievous and stuff. And football was kind of my escape from it all. And um, I never really knew how to harness my energy until I got the opportunity to play football at a young age. And so, like I say, it was kind of that escape for me to, to kind of offload that energy and play with friends and meet new people and stuff. And once I figured out, I, I never used to, I used to play in goal. It's real funny. I used to be a goalkeeper when I was younger and then come out and like try and win the game and take those players on. And that was when I first discovered like, I actually, I'm all right at it, you know? And when you get feedback, positive feedback and like people reassure you that you are good at something, you kind of want to do it more, don't you? Yeah, I can definitely relate to that, especially on the kind of behavioral side at school. I was very similar in in that sense, sort of teacher's nightmare if uh, yeah. if uh, I wasn't enjoying the sessions. But, you know, people talk about being in the zone. That's something that I probably experienced more as a kid just playing in the playground. Like that hour would go so quickly because when I played, I was so engrossed in the game. Was, it, was that yeah. kind of similar for you growing up? Yeah, well, I think because, because it's like you're there because you love it and you're so excited and, and you are that engrossed in what's happening and what's going on around you and you're concentrating so hard and playing with your friends and, and doing the right thing. I don't think you really think about like um, the things that as you get older become important. So like the results don't really matter. It's just taking part and you're just enjoying that hour, like you say, and how fast that goes. You're kind of devastated. And when you're in the back garden, and you're kicking the ball against the fence, and your mum's like, come here, and it's tea time, it's half seven, the lights are on. And it's like, oh, where did that time go? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As you get progressively get older, it kind of, like, the results start to come into it. And, and, and you're kind of driven for, for other reasons, where when you're a kid, it's that, that passion and that fire that's inside you that just kind of makes you fall in love over and over. And every time you play, that passion just gets bigger and bigger. No, brilliant. So, so when for you did it, did it kind of start to get a little bit more serious? So you, you're growing up in your area, you're starting to play regularly, you're starting to get that feedback that you could potentially be quite a good player. When did things take a step towards becoming a bit more serious for you? I think as a youngster, I was playing for my local team. We was quite a successful local um, side as kids growing up. And uh, my, my dad moved, uh, we, we moved to Scunthorpe. Um, due to work for my dad's work. And at the time, there was a ruling in the FA that stipulated if you have to travel more than 30 minutes to, to play your game or 
over 30 miles, I think it is, that you can't, you have to move. So when I was in Rotherham playing for a love in my football, um, it became serious when the FA sent us a letter and said, you can't play for Heart Tigers anymore because of the, the distance. And I, my world come crashing down because all of a sudden then you have to kind of up sticks, move, start a new team. And kind of that passion a little bit was lost until Scumfork came knocking on my door. And then that transition from Sunday League football, where you're enjoying it, you're playing for the love of it, to an academy, if you like, then you're kind of looking at it and you're thinking, all right, this is serious now. These are players that are like the best in, in this area, the best in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire and stuff. And um, it took me a while to find my feet because obviously you don't get picked if you don't have some form of natural ability. But with that, you have to have a level of mentality as well. I think when you go from um, Sunday League to Academy. And that yeah, I, was kind of when I realised, right, okay, this is serious now. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that as well. I think um, how quickly you go from loving playing Sunday league football with your mates and sort of smashing three hat-tricks in a game. As soon as I went into the academy system, it instantly changed. It was no longer fun for me. I think others maybe will have a little bit longer of a period where they're still enjoying it. But for me, it had become almost like a job quite quickly. What, what age did you go into academy football and how did you find that kind of transition? So as you said at the beginning there, I was at Leeds um, when I lived in Rotherham. It was kind of like their shadow system, so not quite their academy. Um, I broke into the academy and then had to leave within like the space of two weeks uh, because I moved to Scunthorpe. And then quite quickly from there, I got picked up by Scunthorpe at, um, at 13. And I was there a couple of years um, and then got released just before my scholarship, which was another kind of setback because... I was training with a youth team and as, as you know, if you train with a youth team at um, an academy level, you think, oh, I kind of made it. I'm, I'm going to get a scholarship. <laughs> yeah. And then there was a kind of restructuring that's come for, kind of knocked me back. And I went to the exit trials and that's where Jez and Nolan picked me up at Cambridge. And I think I struggled really badly. I got in a lot of trouble in my youth team days at Cambridge, which we'll obviously talk about a little bit later. Um, and that's when I go back to the transition of um, not, not taking things serious. But because academy football is serious, as you, as you know, um, and I was still in that mindset of I'm playing with my mates, I'm in digs, I can kind of get away with the same things and the same behaviours that I was kind of used to. And I found it really hard to adapt. Yeah, I think that's something that things get really serious when you become a scholar somewhere in the sense that you, you are quite literally a footballer. You, that is your job. Obviously, you've got your education there as well. Um, but once you go into that full-time environment, the, the, the dynamics and the pressure change massively. Did you find that a struggle just in terms of your acting out because you were trying to deal with the pressure or was it just the boredom? Because I remember being in digs was it's quite a slog sometimes. You just end up doing mad stuff just to kind of entertain yourself. Yeah, well, it was funny because when I first came down there and I was very much like, when I was younger, I found it hard to fit in. I found it hard to kind of um, be in a crowd of, of either um, young boys or, or young teenagers. So I, I played up to the, um, for the reasons that I wanted to fit in. I wanted to make people laugh. And I didn't care what I had to do to do it, whether it be... Um, 
staying up late or going out down Kendall way or um, trashing the house with the fire extinguisher or, or having food fights when Diane's just cooked us like loads of food. Do you know what I mean? So I didn't care how I played up as long as I got them like laughs and I was known as the joker. Um, and that kind of followed me all the way through, even in my professional career a little bit. Um, because I was, I was always known as that, the guy who always wear the weirdest clobber or like dressed differently to people. And I would do anything I could just to get laughs, even if it was like taking the piss out of me. Do you know what I mean? Or, yeah, just to kind of get that acceptance within the group and yeah, to be a part of it. So you're living in digs. You've been recruited by a man that some will know and some won't, Jez George. Um, the character that you've just described for yourself is the opposite of what Jez wants. He instills that mentality of total discipline. Everything's based around football. Um, and it actually for, for characters, maybe like myself and yourself, that's actually a real positive. How, how did you find you sort of got on with Jez and how did he influence your career? Yeah. Do you know what? I've got a lot of respect um, for Jez. I didn't necessarily like his ways. Um, but it turned, well, it didn't turn me, but it made me adapt. It made me because like you said there, it was his way or no way. And for a while it was like, um, the opposite magnets kind of that force was kind of pushing away from each other because Jez wanted it one way. I was stubborn in my ways. I was stuck in my ways, but I always respected what he was trying to do like on the pitch. Like, remember he's got like two years to try and turn you and make you ready for first-team football, which at the time was conference football. So we played in the Regions League, as you know, and that's men's football. So it's getting you ready um, and instilling them fundamentals that you need to make that transition again to men, men's football in the first team. And I fought against that. I still wanted to do the playground, tippy-tappy things, play with my mates. And it wasn't until my second... Because in my first year, because of my behaviour, because of my actions... Um, eating sweets in digs, staying up late, not doing the right things. Um, I didn't play in my first year scholarship. And it wasn't until my second year that I kind of went away because we had the break and we went, I went away. And it was kind of decision time for me. Do I want to just throw away two years of my life when I've got a really good opportunity? Um, because ability-wise, there was no question. Jez had already told me that. I'd trained with the first team on a few occasions because of that. I mean, Gary Brabin was the manager at the time. You know Brabs real well. Like he was, he wanted youth. He was, he was very much for youth coming through. And um, but my off the pitch antics wasn't matching what I was doing on the pitch. And you know, they both come hand in hand. So did you get to a point where the penny dropped? So, for example, with myself. I was quite a late developer physically and I felt like we went off for the summer break after the first year where I'd been, I'd played a lot of reserve games, but I wasn't contributing in them. I was out there, but I weren't playing. Um, and then I came back for second year and I, I felt stronger. Like my body had changed and I thought I'm ready to go here. And the penny dropped. I'd done a lot of running with Jez. I was fit as I could possibly be. And then everything happened at the right time and it just clicked for me. Did that happen for you in the second year? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and in the first year, um, I kind of thought my ability would get me through. And of course, that's only a small percentage of actually making it into the professional game. Um, in my second year, I went away and kind of like you did, 
worked hard on my fitness. I was never the strongest. I could never do the most pull-ups. I could never do the most dips. I wasn't physically strong in that sense, like in the gym. Um, but I went away and I really worked hard on the running side of things and being the fittest because I know I, weren't, I was never going to be the strongest because I was in a team where um, I, I was August. So I was always like younger than everybody. So these, were, these guys were like almost 12 months advanced in terms of their physical development. So I, I just made sure that I was fit. If I wasn't the fittest, I was pushing it to my absolute maximum. And I came back and um, I scored well in all my, like bet, bettered my scores. So I never judged myself off what everybody else was doing. I just made sure I was the best version of me because I, didn't, I always wanted to chase the next person. I always wanted to be better than people. But ultimately, I was doing this for myself now. In my second year, the most important person in my eyes and the only person that could defeat me was me. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, um, that's quite telling, I think, for a, a lot of young players because you look at a two-year scholarship and when you first sign it, you think, oh, I've got ages. And then yeah. gradually, the routine chips away and eventually you get to November in your second year and you're like, if you haven't done enough, you're done. You've got no chance. Absolutely. Um, so it's really important to kind of get that mentality to switch as quickly as you can. If it takes you six months, then so be it. Yeah. Um, but I found that really interesting, that sort of parallels there. Um, so you started to, to sort of get in and around the first team at, at Cambridge United. Um, you made your first team debut, I think, against Grimsby coming on as a substitute. What was that like? Describe the feeling for a, kind of any young player that, that might be making their debut quite soon. It was an incredible feeling, um, but I, I remember Martin Ling was the manager previous, and I was meant to be making my home debut because I'd been in around the first team for a while, um, and, and I think the main thing breaking into that first team is that you just work hard and you don't get impatient because I think a lot of young players now think because they're in around the first team, they deserve an opportunity. Deserve is kind of something you, you have to earn. You have to earn that right, you know, and that's the biggest thing that I learned is that work hard beats um, your ability hands down every time. And I just worked hard. And I was remember we traveled on the coach and Martin Ling actually lost his job just before the game and Jez took over. And um, I was starting, but that went through the window. But then Jez gave me my home debut against Grimsby. And I just remember itching to come on, itching to try and make that difference and make a name for myself. But Jez taught me that never to get too high with the highs and low with the lows, you know, and, and I know that you can probably say the same, that he kind of, that was his message to stay level uh, uh, amongst everything that's happening. Um, so when I came on, I remember it, Danny Wright um, was playing up front, I come on um, up front with Danny. And I just remember um, no matter what happens, do not stop running. <laughs> do not stop running, just work hard because you get a reaction then. People kind of respect you. They kind of think, ah, oh, Husey, ah, oh, he worked hard. I might not say, ah, oh, Husey was the best player I've ever played with or technically great, but you know what? He ran and he ran and he ran and he played, played with his heart on his sleeve. And that's what I wanted to be remembered by throughout my time at Cambridge. Definitely. Well, uh, one player that we, um, we spoke to him last week, actually, a really good podcast with uh, Josh Colson, somebody that you'll know very well and, and will have played with. Do you think he kind of 
is the prime example of someone who may not be the most gifted. I think Josh was a talented player, but probably not the most naturally talented in our youth team. But he's the one who went on to have the career that most of us would have loved to do. Do you think he is the prime example of a player getting the most out of their ability with their mentality? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've got a lot of respect for Josh. And the Josh set, kind of set that way for, for, for us breaking into that first team. We, we looked at Josh as a role model. Um, and, and I kind of did throughout my time at Cambridge, to be honest, because he kind of was there and done it. And Josh had this amazing ability to, like you say there, not knowing what he was good at and was that mentally strong to, to continually do it to a good standard. And I think that's what set Josh aside from a lot of players. And that's why through the transitional stages where we kind of went through a few managers, Josh was always a constant. Do you know what I mean? And he kind of always made sure when there was two or three new central defenders. I remember we signed Ian Miller and Tom Bonner um, from um, Dartford. And I think Ian was from Grimsby and was quite successful. And they were kind of dead cert to be playing. And I don't think Josh started the season in the centre-back pairing, but Josh had this amazing bounce-back ability where, you know, if he wasn't starting the season, you can damn well sure he would finish it. And that I kind of looked up to that because I was very, very similar to that in some occasions where better players came to the club. Um, I, I remember Nathaniel Mendes-Lang, who was obviously played in the Premier League and now in the Championship with Cardiff and Ryan Donaldson and, these, uh, Nathan Arnold, they, these players were better than me. They were physically fitter than me, faster than me. But I think that the biggest thing that I learned from Josh was that, again, work, working hard beats ability, beats uh, everything hands down. And that's what I kind of set my stall on. Yeah, and I think one of Josh's main attributes just as a person is that he's got a very stable personality. He's never been someone that, like, if you met Josh when he was 17 or you met him when he was 24 and he played 100-odd games, he's exactly the same humble guy. Like you say, the highs are never as good as you think they are and the lows are never quite as bad. And I think just having that mindset for Josh and that ability to just work to his maximum, he's such a brilliant example to young players coming through the system, never gets carried away with things, and he's just a lovely bloke. That's what we kind of all love about, learn to love about Josh and anyone who has been around him, you kind of learn to love that about him is that he is very humble. He'll talk to anybody. And that's what you kind of learn to love about Josh. And, and I think that I try to take some of his characteristics and instill them in my own life in terms of always be respectful, you know, always be kind, always talk to fans, always give people the time of day because ultimately we were sat in them terraces. We were sat watching these games. We was looking up to these players um, coming through the youth team. You know, we wanted that. Um, and when we achieved, when I achieved that, speaking personally, I always made sure that the little kids that came, even if it's just a high five or stopping to sign something, taking that time makes a massive difference in, in that little boy or that little girl's day, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, I can't let you get away without speaking about Wembley. <laughs> let's talk about it because you had two trips in one season didn't you I mean so to go from being a young lad sort of playing with your mates and to scoring such an important goal at Wembley 
talk me through the sort of process of those two games, the mentality going into it. What was the whole experience like for you? The, the biggest thing for me um, the, and the reason that we achieved what we achieved was the dressing room in which we, ha- that, that we had uh, the lads kind of made that season. We, we were together. Uh, we went down. Uh, I remember Ian Miller doing a, doing a talk and it still gives me goosebumps to this day um, what he said because he'd already been there and, and lost. He walked the final um, and he walked the steps of Wembley as a, as a loser. And um, he kind of G'd everyone up in that FA Trophy final. We travelled down on the day. And that's what I loved about it. There was no blase day. There was no big time um, about it. We didn't go down a night before and have a tour of Wembley. We went down on the day. We took it like any, every other game. We was in our tracksuits. Um, and, and that's what I loved about it. You know, we, tr- we treated it like every other game. And the FA Trophy final obviously was a great day out because it, it set us up well for the, the playoff final. Um, and it was a bit nerve-wracking, you know, walking out of the, the tunnel at Wembley that foot in the FA Trophy and everything feels on top of you. Um, and luckily, well, not luckily, we played real well. Um, I remember we started a bit jaggy because that was just the nerves coming out. And um, it was a fantastic experience to boyhood dream, you know, uh, playing at the the best stadium, arguably, in, in the world um, and, and walking out and knowing that from a four-year-old boy and playing with your dad and now your dad's watching you at Wembley and your mum's watching at you at Wembley and you just think, this is like one of the proudest... And my daughter was there as well. This is like one of the proudest moments of my life. Especially with the following that Cambridge took to those games. Uh, it's amazing. What I've, I'll always remember the kind of playoff semi-finals and when we got to the finals a um, couple of seasons back-to-back when I was involved. The following that Cambridge would take to those games was phenomenal. Did you kind of feel the energy from the crowd those two occasions? Yeah, so go, like when you said the 2008 and 2009 finals when we, we got there, um, I was just coming into the picture then. Um, I was invited down just before my scholarship and the atmosphere and the following, it, it felt like a football league club. Um, and the, the support that we had and the, the build-up, because we went into them, um, especially the playoff final, we went into that game on the worst form. Yeah, Josh was saying. For, in the whole season. We were so bad. And we went into that. And I don't think, personally, if we didn't have that backing by the fans, um, we would have got through it because they they did give us that extra boost that we probably needed at that time. Yeah. What's that feeling like? So when the ball hits the back of the net for you, is it just surreal? Are you in the moment? Or is it one that you think a couple of days later, like, Jesus, I've just scored at Wembley. That's madness. It's a funny, it's a funny feeling, you know, because I remember we was doing the set plays like previous. So build, the build-up to the final, we treated like every other game, we do the set plays. And I was always the one that would be chatting away when he was giving instructions or I was messing about or not listening but it's a playoff final so I remember just listening to everything and hung on to every word he said and I just remember him telling me where I was meant to be standing motions kind of take over and I remember I remember running and Josh Coulson chasing me going where are you going and I ran to the stand when there was hardly any fans. But, you know, <laughs> you know what it is, is that 
when when it goes in and you've scored at Wembley, you don't know what you forget where you are, you forget all the fans and where they are, and you just go crazy. Like everything takes over your body. And honestly, I could hear it still. Josh shouting, "Where are you going?" He's chasing me. Going, "Where are you going?" <laughs> and I've done a knee slide to the empty stand. It's over <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Uh, you definitely won't forget it. Um, so you're sort of into the, the football league after this. Um, and I know after that, you kind of moved away from Cambridge United. So you, you started to, you had a couple of loans, didn't you? To Corby, you went to Inverness for a while. Um, yeah. What the, the Inverness one in particular, what was that like? What was the standard of football like over there? Yeah, so I, I loved it. I really did. They play football. They try and do the right things. And... It was that it happened so quickly uh, that it kind of threw me off a little bit because Sean Derry had just kind of come in, told me I weren't in the plans, etc. And I had a phone call on the same day from Inverness, Callie Thistle. And I remember going in to see Jez um, and saying, I've just got a phone call from Scottish Premier. And he was like, it's up to you. And I thought, do you know what, for football... In terms of football, having that experience to play at Celtic Park, yeah. by Brox against Hibs, you know, these types of things, like, I've got to do it. And for them six months, it kind of made me fall back in love with football again. Um, I had a lot going on in my personal life. I, had, um, I was struggling quite a lot mentally, and I felt it was a, a, a needed escape, um, which I found very quickly. You can't run away from your own problems because they just <laughs> Yeah. So I kind of got up there and in, in a way, it was the right time, but in, in the, the best possible way, it was such a wrong time for me because mentally I wasn't able to give my, my full self to Inverness Caledonia. Yeah, I suppose it's a, a bit of a catch-22 in that you're getting away. I remember Luke Chadwick saying him going to play abroad kind of was like a release because you're away from everything and you just feel free to play. But then I suppose at the same time, alongside that, you are isolating yourself from kind of family, friends, nobody's within touching distance. Was, was that kind of how it was? Yeah, and, and you know what? The, I, I, I did feel that it was, um, you can't really get much further enough, to be honest, in Inverness. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was kind of me escaping to, ne- it's probably easier to get to France, I'll be honest. And, yeah. uh, I remember my dad coming to every single home and away game. Uh, wow. During that time, and that kind of, it's quite emotional because you think the air miles and the cost and everything. And since I've been 15 years old, um, I can probably count on two fingers, uh, sorry, two hands, how, um, how many games my dad's missed that yeah. I play, no matter what level it's been at. Um, and there's always, and that support kind of drives you, you know, and kind of makes you realize why you're doing it. You want to, you want to do it, obviously, for your self-fulfillment, but you do it for your family. You do it for your, your friends who kind of live that dream through you, you know. And for them, the, your mates who say at school, oh, you played at Wembley, you played against Man United, etc." You're kind of like, yeah, I have. I have to pinch myself sometimes. Yeah, I've, I've done it. You know? um, look, well, I definitely want to touch on the mental health side of things. It's something that we're really focusing on. But before we kind of get into that, I wanted to, to talk about your time at Billericay. Um, because it's, it fascinates me. It's a football club that I, I actually played for Billericay on loan for a couple of months. Yeah. Um, really enjoyed it. They're quite a well-supported club around that kind of level. Everybody knows them. 
I'm assuming Glenn Tamplin would have been still involved around that time. He was manager and then he sacked himself. Oh, yeah, I remember, yeah. And then he was chairman and then he reinstated himself as manager. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you, the thing with Glenn is you learn to love him and you kind of learn to kind of understand that everything he does, how wacky and crazy it may be, is always out of pure love yeah. and, and, and the best possible intentions. doesn't necessarily come across that way sometimes, but you kind of do understand where he's coming from sometimes because it's his, it's his, like, it was his club, you know, and it was, he wanted to grow it. He was so passionate and kind of come out in, um, in weird ways sometimes, but you kind of learn about that. So take me back then, when that call first comes in, going down to Billericay, you must have had a couple of thoughts in your head saying, I don't know whether this is going to be a good idea, but they had some good players down there. You first meet Glenn. What's your first impression of him? Look at the size of your house. <laughs> I remember I, got a t- I, was, um, I was on my first date, actually, with my current partner, and I got a phone call from Glenn. He was like, get on a train now. Um, come to my house and we'll talk everything over. <laughs> so I've literally finished the date with my missus, got on the train, gone to Essex, it was Abridge, and gone to his house. And I remember the taxi driver driving and he was going, that's where Stephen Bear lives. That's where Mark Wright lives. I'm going, right. Pulls up to his house, presses the buzzer and the gates just open. And honestly, it's the, one of the biggest houses I've ever seen in my life. And meeting Glenn, he comes out, he's really bubbly, really lively, really bouncy. And I thought, wow, he kind of lifts you up, you know. And um, I'd heard stories from uh, Adam Cunnington, who I played at Cambridge with. Um, and I knew Adam quite well. He was there at the time. He was like, listen, you have to be so mentally strong and... Um, ready for this because it can be a little bit of a circus and I thought come on now I thought I was mentally very strong and uh, very quickly I realised how intense um, champions if you like because they were pushing for champions and they had Jamie O'Hara they had big names you know in in their dressing room and big characters and how quickly winning the league with Cambridge was was brilliant and you had good characters these guys would have done anything it took to win whether it be horrible whatever and it was that mentality that i thought too intense for me really way too intense really so so was that just in terms of like because obviously everybody sees them kind of hugging each other and singing our kelly songs and stuff and it's a bit wacky but do you feel like some of that was a little bit put on for the camera and it, it just drummed up a bit of interest in the club or is that genuinely <laughs> how how Glenn is. Glenn is very much like that. Believe me, he um, he wears his heart on his sleeve, and he doesn't. He kind of forgets himself sometimes with with what he says. Uh, there's been a few occasions where we've had to kind of edit things out of of the videos because he's kind of gone overboard <laughs> by threatening people, and, and that was the that was it. It was so much. One minute he's here, one minute he's oh, it's just insane, and to kind of keep up with it was too much on like for a person like me, um, there was too many ups and downs and the fluctuations we'd be, I remember we was losing three nil. Um, it was a cup final, um, losing three nil. Glenn's text, the manager, Harry Wheeler, um, 
just after half time saying you're sacked. And <laughs> then we equalized to make it 3 3. And he said, maybe being a bit too hasty, up the Ricky. I swear <laughs> to God. <laughs> and it was that much up and down that I just thought, I just can't do this. And I saw, this, I saw the season out. We, uh, we won the treble. We won the domestic competitions in the area, the Essex Senior Cup, the League Cup, and was promoted as champions. So it was a successful time. And don't get me wrong, I loved um, that winning feeling again that, and, and having that winning mentality. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was exhausting. Yeah, certainly an experience by the sound of it, Liam. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was um, Wacky, really wacky. Um, I wanted to um, talk a little bit about the mental health side of things because um, I know that's something you're really passionate about. I think following your social media and seeing the bits you're involved in with Wand, which we'll get to in a minute, yeah. um, is something that I felt was, was relevant to bring up. It's something that I've spoken quite openly about on social media recently. And I think um, it would be really good for you to just kind of explain your journey with those kind of issues and how that's kind of affected you and how you're dealing with it now yeah absolutely i think um like any journey you kind of have to you can't just finish with the ending you kind of have to understand um where it all stems from and for me i kind of thought i mean a lot of my issues came when i was injured against man united there was a lot of things going on at home and personal um life that that i didn't deal with and i thought that was the start of it and it wasn't until I went to Sporting Chance Clinic um, in January of last year that I kind of traced it back to being a young teenager, 13 years old, when I talked earlier about that need to fit in. And um, I lost uh, one of my close friends to suicide at a very young age and never really dealt with that. And um, I kind of went off the rails a little bit by getting into trouble um you know in school and outside of school and and being destructive and vandalizing and stealing and and kind of all the things that you kind of your parents bring you up to not do you kind of rebel against it and um i kind of went off the rails a little bit and then my granddad um passed away um and I didn't deal with any of this. Like loss was a big thing in my childhood that I couldn't handle and still struggle to deal with. And that followed me all the way through my life. Um, and it was shown in the behaviors and, uh, and how I reacted to things. And that was the biggest thing for me. I kind of acted on impulse and it wasn't until later on in my um, early adult life that I kind of understand what impulse um, meant because I just thought it was me acting out or me doing things that's a little bit daft, you know, and got myself in trouble. It wasn't understanding the way that my brain processed things and, and understanding that I'm, I'm wired a little bit different in the best possible way. And I'm not saying that I've got something wrong with me and people who, um, who behave that way have something wrong because it is actual, it's an actual proven illness, scientifically proven that, there's a chemical imbalance in your brain that triggers these things. Um, so when the, the injury against Man United happened and when I really struggled and turned to drinking and turned to drugs and um, tried to suppress all these feelings and push it under the carpet, that was just me trying to cope. It was a coping mechanism. Um, 
and it led to obviously the suicide attempts um, and rushed to hospital and the self-harm and all the things that come with it. And I thought I was dealing with it on my own when in reality, there was good people, professional people who can help and understand that you're not going to get judged. You're not going to be ridiculed against or, or held accountable for any of your actions. The main thing is that people do want you to succeed or want you to get better because what I've learned is that football is a kind of a little bubble and when it starts affecting your mental health and when it start or, or things start affecting you to a point where you're contemplating your own life like I did, then the bigger picture is that, okay, jobs are irrelevant, money's irrelevant, let's just get better, okay, because this is no way of life. And that's what I quickly learned um, in the process of, of uh, my journey to get better. Do you feel like that kind of crept up on you a little bit? Because I think a lot of the time with mental health issues and certainly in my experience when I finished playing football is that it doesn't just happen one day and you're like, I'm depressed now and I can diagnose all my symptoms. I know exactly what's happening. It kind of creeps up after a while and after three or four weeks, you're like, I'm not eating properly. I'm not exercising. I'm not doing all the things that I would usually do. And suddenly it's arrived and you don't know how you got to the position you were in. Is that kind of how it works with, with yourself? Yeah, and I think that it's like the old cliche in the saying, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back, you know. It's that all these things that may go unnoticed, so you may be not sleeping right, or you may be, like you said, not eating right, and which was the case for myself as well, um, struggling with insomnia, um, the odd panic attack that I never understood. I thought I was dying the first time I had a panic attack, and... It's these little things that you kind of brush under the carpet and then there may be a major thing. And for mine, mine was the injury against United, as I say. And it, that might just be the thing that tips you over the edge, but it does, it creeps up on you very, very slowly and, and goes so unnoticed to the point where you kind of think, where has where that even come from? And you kind of have all these questions running around in your mind that you can't answer, which then in turn... Um, brings that anxiety like why me what I'm I'm fine like the the old saying I'm fine like people saying I'm fine is because they genuinely believe they are like I thought I was fine in reality inside I was this mess this emotional wreck and um, looking back I now understand that my behaviors and the way I acted it was all a mask you know and it's not until you truly accept everything that happens and, and you kind of go through to, to, so you can get better. That's the main thing is that you have to learn to understand yourself um, and your own actions and how your brain operates before you can kind of take that next step to getting better. How, how difficult was it for you to, to go and ask for help? Because I know that's, I mean, a lot of people will say that's the first, kind of stage is to go and speak to someone about it for a lot of people that's actually towards the back end you'll have struggled with this for years and years and years and you, you know that potentially there's help out there but you even don't realize that you need it or you don't have the power to go and ask for it how difficult was it for you to go and say to someone i've got some issues here i need somebody to talk to and and somebody to help me yeah i think you hit the nail on the head there as well like a lot of people out there may leave it to a crisis point. I certainly did. I tried to take my life twice before 
I'd even got to the point of talking. Uh, and it wasn't until I kind of was driving to work and I was drinking and had that impulsive feeling of wanting to drive off the road, knowing that I have two daughters at home waiting for their daddy to come home, that I kind of thought, I need, I need somebody to just strap me to a chair because I'm, I'm scared that I'm going to do something so drastic that it's going to be irreversible. And I think that more so now, more than ever, pe more people are talking and taking the right uh, precautions before it gets to that point you know um, I still think more can be done and more awareness can be raised because ultimately there's so many ple people and charities and organizations out there that are there for crisis point but I think we need to do more to stop that build up you know and that's why I I set up wand uh, because I want to get that message out there. I want to get to people before it reaches that crisis point because ultimately if we can stop the build-up to it, we eradicate the problem. Yeah, but one of the things I was going to say, which is a massively important part of what you're doing, is almost just to make people aware of what an issue might look like. Because I think for me in particular, at 1918, I didn't even know what, what might be a symptom of depression or what might be a warning sign for me, if that makes sense. Is that a big part of what you're, what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think that, you know, when people say about mental health and there's so many different aspects of it, when you go back to maybe when we were uh, younger, I think when you say the term mental health, the only thing people thought of was maybe anorexia, bulimia. There was no real understanding of what mental health was it was such a broad term now that maybe you can kind of be quick to jump down that road of um like you said earlier self-diagnosis of oh, oh, men, i've got mental health problems you know and without really understanding because that's not saying that you don't but let's let's teach people and understand what the symptoms may be not not to look out in for yourself but to look out for in other people you know because Ultimately, when you go somewhere, when you talk to somebody or, or you, you're, you're anywhere, you might look at somebody and you think, oh, they're struggling. And you might be the reason that they seek help. And when I do my talks, I just kind of put it in a bigger picture. The fact that, okay, there's people in this room who are suffering. Okay. I don't want people to start putting their hand up, but I want my story to kind of make them think, wow, that, yeah, that's me. And this is what he's done. And this is where he is now. Do you know what I mean? And I think that by talking and opening yourself up to the vulnerability of mental health and the fact that it doesn't discriminate and the fact that it can affect anybody at any time and any place, you can, you can kind of get people to kind of be gripped then and kind of listen to what you're saying. Yeah, I think so. And I think especially coming from somebody like yourself, like footballers are built up to be these sort of amazing people that can achieve these different things. They have massive skill sets. There's obviously the money that comes alongside that. And I think what a lot of people don't do is sort of re remove that layer of what people perceive of what a footballer should be to what is actually going on in, on the inside. And I think have, having someone who's been through that journey and achieved what you've achieved 
it's so so important for for young people so are, are you kind of focusing on certain age groups or is it across secondary schools or how, how does the program work so i have clients on an eight-week program um, that's been tried and tested by clinical directors that i've been on myself when i went into rehab it's adapted and personalized for them um, so if you want to embark on a one-to-one -one basis that we offer that services as well um, mainly we go out and we do workshops for businesses we do it for colleges universities secondary schools football teams i mean um, i've just created a new uh, workshop specifically for youth teams that i'm hoping to um, to get out once we come from lockdown um, called trapped inside the box obviously talking all things mental health um, i've Hopefully, been speaking to Max Rushton uh, recently, so hopefully be working with him to try and get the message out there also. Um, so there are things that we're trying to, to pilot and try and test um, to, to get the message out there. I think the big thing for me is that um, we want to try and get people talking, get people opening up more. And that's sometimes easier said than done. Um, and I know there's a lot of campaigns like Britain Get Talking, which is absolutely amazing. It's fantastic. Um, but it's about managing expectation against reality. Because if we expect people just be like, oh, well, the TV is telling me to get talking. So, yeah, here we go. I'm just going to talk now. That's not the reality of things. And I think it's making people feel comfortable with their surroundings and their environment and giving them the opportunity to to sometimes listen before they speak first. Because if you just say to somebody, listen, come and talk to me, offload, tell me all your personal troubles, then you kind of, they, that guard goes up, doesn't it? It's almost like, well, that's personal to me. I'm, I don't really feel comfortable. Whereas if you go somewhere in a group of people or on a one-on-one -on -one basis and say, okay, I've tried to kill myself twice. I was an alcoholic, I was a cocaine addict. Um, I've been in rehab. I have struggled with mental health since being the age of 13 years old. Um, people kind of go, okay, tell me more. I'll listen to you. Um, and then you kind of, that barrier starts to come down. And then you find instead of it being therapy, you're actually having a conversation, which is the whole point of the, the task in hand anyway, is that you're sat there now talking about your life and they're going, oh yeah, that happened to me as well. I remember when I was, da, 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 you know, so all of a sudden you're, you've gone from a therapy one-to-one -one session to just a normal conversation that you're having with somebody who's like-minded and being through the same thing. And that's brilliant. If, if people want more information, where, where can they go to, to, uh, to kind of find that? Yeah, so I chose uh, deliberately not to have a website just for the sheer fact that it's a lot of browsing, a lot of reading. So I kind of do all my work through social media. So Twitter, at OneTalks, um, Instagram, the same, One.Talks. And on Facebook, I have a Facebook page, Wand Wisdom and New Direction. So if anybody wants to get more information, they're the, they're the necessary tools to find that. My contact details, personal phone numbers on there email addresses on there uh, and like I say I try and post on there things that you kind of read uh, in motivational quotes or personal experiences um, and it's worth looking at you know because it is something that you can take and adapt into your personal life and it's not necessarily going to apply to you but if you look close enough 
there are things that will apply to every single person that reads it. And that's what I'm trying to do is that even if you're having a down day, you go on my page and you see something and you think, you know, and that's how I live my life. I, I just think just for today, because you know, tomorrow's not, not promised and the past is the past. Now I can't change it. And I live just for today. Um, and that's what I get my followers to try and instill into their lives. Now, I think that it sounds like an absolutely brilliant initiative. Um, I think it's something that you're very, very passionate about, and I'm sure it's going to be a massive, massive success. Um, it's just great to hear people like yourself that are trying to reach out to all different kinds of communities that you will have played football in and, and sort of been around, and you can try and help through that. I think that's absolutely brilliant to hear. Um, the, the last part of the show, we always do a little feature called Show and Tell. Um, whereby the guest brings a pretty self-explanatory. You'd have done it when you were sort of six, seven, eight, but you, you bring an object, means something to you and you talk about it. What have you got for me, Liam? And what does it mean to you? So, um, on my bedside table, um, because of everything that I've been through, I always carry this picture around with me. It is a picture of my children and uh, my partner's children all together. Happy. And also, uh, a framed picture, it's a bit dirty because it's so old. It says one day at a time. And that follows me everywhere I go. Um, and it just reminds me, it's a gentle reminder, you know, that um, I do have to take one thing at a time and one step at a time, one day at a time, because ultimately um, when I try and plan too far ahead, it's when my mind starts to get boggled. And if I live in the past and with everything that I've done in my past, some of it's obviously positive but if i go back there then negative things start to to come into my head and it's important to just take one day at a time and live just for today like i said before so this stays with me wherever i go on away trips and follows me and it's on my bedside table so it's really important to me and it's so so insignificant you know it's not it's not expensive it's it's just something that is really personal to me and and kind of reminds me that when i wake up in the morning why am i doing the things that i'm doing and um, it kind of, I want to make a difference today. 